Frank's Red Hot is the perfect blend of flavor and heat. So you can use an entire bottle to make recipes like buffalo chicken dip or buffalo nachos. Or even things that don't start with buffalo. Frank's Red Hot. I put that on everything. Craig, I'm so excited. And I just can't find it. I didn't even change the song that time. I just rolled with it, the original. <laughs> yeah, we are excited. Yeah, um, we have, or well, this is Podcast versus Everyone. Uh, as usual, we forget to do that. Um, I'm Craig Powers. With me is Jeff Neuser. But you're and, even more likely to forget to do it this week because we're so tickled. Yeah, because um, we, uh, we have guests, Jeff. We have, we guests. have multiple guests this week. Which so is, I'm, you know, we went forever without having any guests, and then we dipped our toes in with one guest, and now, now we have two guests. And and first, I'll say our our, our returning guest, um, he's kind of a co-host this week, is uh, WSU assistant basketball coach John Andershek. Sorry, not as cool as an intro this time, John. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. I, I pale in comparison to our main <laughs> guest tonight. Yeah, well, we all do. We all do. It's okay. All right, and and for our other guest, um, I, I I I wrote a little intro. Um, his laptop single handedly took Butler to consecutive Final Fours. He is Jim Bayham's favorite writer. His blue is second only to Carolina in college basketball prominence. He made math cool again. He's contributed to the Athletic, College Bass Prospectus, and lots of other places. But most importantly, his own website that you can totally pass off. As work when your boss walks by, Ken Pomeroy. Woo! Hey guys, great intro. We, I love it. We needed some like canned applause or something. Like, uh, <laughs> well, like I don't know. I'm listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me every week still, but now they're doing it in you know studios and they they have like the canned applause now, so that at least it you know sounds like people are laughing at the jokes and stuff. So I don't know. Maybe we needed that. But that's what you get on this crap podcast. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for lowering, your, lowering yourself. What's that? <laughs> Provide your own applause. Yeah, I, I, I did. I, I, you know, it just sounded like anyway. But yeah, so, so Ken, I guess we have to start with uh, the question that everybody is asking everybody these days, which is, how are you spending your time cooped up in your home? Mm, yeah, I don't have a. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm not unusual in this, but I don't have a super exciting answer. Uh, you know, a lot of it is spent uh, in my, I've, I've really become well acquainted with my home office, which, um, which surprisingly, I usually don't spend a lot of time in. Like, usually if I want to get something done, I leave the house and, uh, you know, go someplace like a coffee shop or something and map out a certain amount of time and try to get a task done in that time. But uh, yeah, I've spent, spent a lot of time in my home office. Uh, also doing a lot of bike riding really have gotten to learn the, uh, the bike trail network of Salt Lake city pretty well here the the past few weeks. Um, a lot of house cleaning, a lot of stuff that, uh, isn't terribly exciting, but I know I'm not alone in that. Yeah. It sounds like everyone's life here. Your Salt Lake city must have some nice Hills to hit. It does. Like it's, uh, you know, obviously you've been here, but I don't know how much you've, uh, you know, how much you've uh, surveyed the topography, but it is, uh, you know, there's mountains to the east. And so if you want a good climb, uh, that's where you go. And I've kind of 
steadily progressed from, you know, in the old days, walking my bike up the hill to actually riding it without thinking too much of it. So, uh, so there is that. I think I'm in a little bit better shape since this whole thing started. Well, and that is something that you and Craig have in common. Craig is also a cyclist. And uh, would you? What was it? You did the? What was that one you did a couple weeks oh, the, like a the, month ago? The Chilly Hilly. That's right, the Chilly Hilly. It's a ride around an island, uh, Bainbridge Island, uh, across from Seattle. You take a ferry over, and it's uh, about a. I think it, it was like eighteen hundred foot climb in, in about thirty three miles. So it was a good workout in February. You also did Seattle to Portland, right? I did, yeah. yeah. That was uh, not very much fun. It's <laughs> a literally bike, Seattle right? to Portland. Like, yeah, they have a ride that's Seattle to Portland, so you you can do it all in one day. But we did a hundred miles one day and a hundred miles the next day. So, well, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. <laughs> so, where do I right. leave the pod? I don't belong. <laughs> <laughs> I've fallen, oh, don't my worry. Fitness, my fitness has fallen off a cliff since this whole thing uh, began. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, let's see. I've drank a lot of beer. I know Craig has drank a lot of beer. Craig's trying to empty out his cellar, so. <laughs> yeah, it's bad news. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's ask uh, let's talk about things that maybe the listeners actually might want to listen to. Okay, so Ken Pomeroy, uh, purveyor of KenPom.com for any listeners who maybe didn't uh, didn't make that connection. Um, so Craig and I are one of the reasons why we're, we're, you know, super excited to talk to you is just because, you know, we always have, and I know this is why John is here as well. Like we just have lots and lots and lots of questions on our mind, lots of, lots of things to, to pick your brain about. Um, like I know when I listen to your, you know, your podcast with, with Griffin, like I just, like, I love the, the way that your brain kind of, you know, takes seemingly straightforward things and maybe turns it on its side a little bit to think about it. But, you know, kind of before we get to all that, um, you know, this is something that, that, you know, Craig and I and John all all sort of understand, but I I imagine a lot of our listeners don't because we kind of we get these questions and comments sometimes about um, about the rankings and things like that. So maybe just uh, and, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but you know maybe just give a quick and dirty explanation of how your ranking system works, um, and and maybe also explain as as a side note why if you beat a team that's like 50 spots ahead of you in the rankings, you don't automatically move up like 30 or 50 spots. Right. I was going to be asking that question. I was thinking I need to start. I need to start there. Really, because, <laughs> uh, the, You know, the nitty gritty of the rankings is is difficult to explain. But the general philosophy is I'm trying to produce uh, a list of uh, ratings that reflect how good a team is right now. And, you know, theoretically, how good they'll be like in the short term, like in the next two to four weeks, let's say. Um, so. Uh, as it turns out, you know, there's a large body of research that uh, shows that um, the best way to make those predictions is really looking at scoring margin um, in general and not necessarily uh, wins and losses. So there are going to be times. <clears throat> so I guess the first thing is I'm not trying to rate like how good your season has been. You know, this is not um, designed to select at large teams. Um, it's designed to just determine, hey, how good are you going to be going forward? And uh, it's designed to make predictions, basically, I guess is a better way to put it. So if I, if you're playing at home against a team 50 spots above you, depending on where you are in the rankings, you could very well be favored in that game. And if you, you win a close game against that team, you know, if you're close to the prediction, your ranking is not going to change very much. Um, so, yeah, people get tripped up by that. I guess 
like the other thing to mention is that <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons the ratings became popular early on was that I split the ratings into offensive and defensive ratings. So, um, you know, you have an offensive efficiency and a defensive efficiency that's adjusted for the quality of opponent and uh, how recently the game was played and, and some other factors. But uh, it's not just meant to be a 1 to 353 rating. It's meant to kind of identify, you know, offensive and defensive ability. And, and obviously the subscription por- portion of the website allows you to, uh, you know, delve into to more details after that. Yeah, on on the subscription side, you have obviously a bunch more analytics and you've in statistics, you've added more and more throughout the year. Um, How do you decide? Obviously, you have the four factors, which is, you know, uh, goes back to basketball on paper. But uh, where do you uh, how do you decide what to include? Well, at this point, certainly on that, like the main team page at this point, the standard is, is pretty high. Um, there's not a lot of room for, for more stats on the team page. I guess last year I added non-steal turnover percentage um, because I removed the defensive fingerprint, which right. tried to estimate what type of defense a team played based on their stats. And as it turned out, it wasn't very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was kind of a no-brainer to get rid of that, especially after Mike Hopkins took over at Washington. I mean, that was really the kicker where – you know, they were playing zone, but they were sort of really extending their zone. And uh, the stats that were being produced by their team were not consistent with most other zone teams. And so the, the rating or the uh, algorithm kind of broke on that. And I, after fiddling with it a lot, I just kind of gave up on it and thought uh, I'll just punch in non-steal turnover percentage to replace it. Um, but for the most part, you know, I try to – I feel like my philosophy on adding stats to the site – so, you know, if I, if I add a – stat to the site or there's, there is a stat on my site it usually meets one of two criteria the first one is that it obviously adds something to your analysis of a team or a player like it obviously has use and on the flip side it i could also have a stat that is just like obviously trivial like there's no question that it doesn't add any like meaningful analysis if you're a coach or anything but it is kind of an interesting uh, piece of trivia uh, I, the stats i don't like to add are the ones that are kind of in between and the, you know, the ones that come to mind are like lineup type, you know, plus minus or individual plus minus or things like that. Obviously you can get those from other locations and there's, there are services that offer those, but uh, even though they, it's, you know, it sounds cool and it sounds like something that's really useful uh, as it turns out, it tends to, especially the lineup based stuff, you know, the sample sizes are so small that it just tends to not be useful. And uh, if I ever added that to the site, I'm sure it would be misused in ways that would make me cringe. So, uh, so those are the kind of things that I kind of uh, avoid adding to the site. John, go ahead and ask oh. the next question. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, diving deeper into your into your site, uh, you list uh, coaching resumes for, for every coach, right? So at different schools that they've coached at uh, and how they play on offense, on defense, do they block a lot of shots, create turnovers, uh, all these different areas. And, and one of the things that myself and the rest of the coaching staff, Coach Smith, really, really enjoy is, is kind of going through each coach and, and seeing their identity, you know, the things that year in and year out they're always good at, whether that's, uh, you know, taking care of the ball or creating turnovers or shooting a great percentage from two. Uh, and then there's some coaches that kind of go back and forth and play different ways and you don't see that same hard trend. So 
long story short, if you take a look at my boss, uh, Kyle Smith on his page, what, what kind of jumps out to you? Yeah. I, I mean, the, you know, the one thing that jumps out is defensively defending the three point shot, uh, limited three point attempts, limited assists. You know, those two things usually go hand in hand. Um, three pointers, I guess for people who don't know, three pointers are assisted on like 85 to 90% of the time in college basketball. So, uh, assist rate and three-point attempt rate tend to be you know, pretty highly correlated. You can find some exceptions, but for the most part, if you're limiting threes, you're also going to limit assists. And uh, an extension of that, this is not always true as well, but you know, teams that limit assists, like assist defense is like a thing that is not really ever talked about in any analysis or by any kind of commentator on TV, but uh, assist defense is a real thing. And uh, if you... Um, are good at preventing assists your defense tends to be pretty good again not always true but um there is a, a relationship there over time do Great. you make and anything that... i was gonna say do you you mentioned the three point uh three point low three point attempts uh low assist percentage um but also generally at least the last like four years low three point percentage against what do you make of that? And I know you've looked, you know, pretty taken pretty deep dives into three pointers. So is that is that something that sticks out to you as well as something that's been repeatable for him? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about that. So I, I mean, my own personal belief. I mean, obviously, you've read my stuff, and I, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence in three point percentage defense in general uh, being a, a real thing. You know, there's some limited cases where I think it is. Um, but to me, three-point defense is mostly just kind of like a, a byproduct of your overall defense. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, you look at like a Tony Bennett team, like, you know, they typically have very good three-point defense, but they're, you know, obviously you can understand that teams are probably just settling for some bad three-pointers against them because it's hard to get anything else, you know, inside the arc. Um, so, yeah, I'm on the skeptical side, especially given the fact that the two-point defense wasn't very good this year. Like, uh, you know, it, 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 those two things don't really match up. And so I guess I would, I would be a, a little cautious about that continuing, but um, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I stand on that. I'm sure John can throw a, a million reasons why I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to stick with my guns here. Well, that's, no, I, I mean, that's, that's maybe a good place to go with it. So, I mean, John, you're, you're obviously familiar with what you guys are trying to do. So, yeah. you know, from a statistical perspective, you know, and, and like Ken said, you know, I've read, you know, all the stuff he's written on it. And it's this idea that, you know, once the shot's up in the air, there's some randomness involved. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, do you feel like there's anything that you guys do that, that does suppress um, that does suppress not just the attempts, but the makes? Well, well, I'll start here. We are absolutely trying to limit three-point attempts. So when when Ken points that out, uh, that's something we've been trying to do for years, really with only one exception. So we had one year at Columbia that, and this shows up very clearly uh, on our Ken Palm page from that year, uh, but we had one year at Columbia where we just did not think we could uh, protect the rim at all because we were playing sort of really skinny and, and undersized. Uh, so we tried to be more in the gaps and kind of play the ball on drives and things like that. Uh, and we gave up way more threes because of it. Um, now I will say this year, 
we did, there were some internal conversations on the staff about like, should we move just slightly more that direction uh, because we are giving up such a high percentage from two, you know, so, so should we double the post more? Uh, should we be in the gaps more on drives? Uh, should we do some things that uh, prevent uncontested or lightly contested layups, uh, but potentially could turn into threes? Makes sense. Yeah, you know, the one interesting, uh, I guess, point I'll bring up too is that uh, obviously uh, Coach Smith's successor at San Francisco, Todd Golden, they, you know, Apparently, it's carried the same philosophy into, into the last season, and I've kind of talked to him about it. And you know, it's obviously a conscious decision, but you know, they were they were ninth best in three point attempt defense and uh, three thirty six in three point percentage, which that's a that's a harder one for me to explain. Like you can obviously you know <laughs> yeah. you can noodle through the connection between suppressing attempts and, and teams maybe not making a high percentage, but how do you suppress yeah. attempts and have opponents you know make a high percentage still of the few that they're taking? No, no doubt. So, no doubt. I mean, we'll see that kind of stuff, and it just makes you question, like, yeah, is is three point percentage defense really a thing? We we tell our team in scouting reports, like, once the ball leaves the guy's hand, you don't control the outcome anymore. You know, so the best way to take away a great three point shooter is never let him get it up. Yeah. So I mean, that's you know, it's also interesting too. I you know, I tell people uh, the thing the thing that's most predictable in a basketball game is not the score. You know, it's not the point spread or anything like that. It's where are the shots going to come from? Like, you know, you show me two teams and what they defend, you know, just looking at three point attempt rate, just looking at that. Like if I, you know, if I know the three point attempt rate for two teams, offensively and defensively, like I can make a pretty good prediction about how many threes are going to be shot by each team. And you know, if you even break that down further and tell me how many, you know, shots they get at the rim and things like that, I can, you know, noodle through like how many, Shots both teams are going to get at the rim in a game, and obviously the the shooting percentage is the thing that that makes the sport so interesting, and why you have upsets is because sometimes the shots go in, sometimes they don't. But uh, that you know the shot distribution is what you know both teams I think are really trying to control in the game. Yeah, I wanted to kind of uh, bring it back to when you talked about what 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 you include on the page, and um, you you can you mentioned plus minus in there as something that you. Uh, statistically don't, you know, don't have enough sample size for, but I know coaches, uh, like it, they use it. Um, John, I'm pretty sure you guys use plus minus in some way. Um, so I guess John, from your perspective and, and I don't know if Ken, if you've heard from coaches like, Hey, we do like plus minus, um, why, why does plus minus persist still, even, even if, you know, there's this kind of statistical ambiguity there. Well, we we really try to take into account the uh, the sample size issues with plus minus, and we won't we for the most part will not make lineup decisions uh, based on the plus minus until we're about ten games in, uh, and then as we move forward and we look at like front court combinations, it's a similar deal where we're looking for two hundred possessions. Uh, those sorts of that sort of uh, amount of data uh, in order to make decisions on it. Now, the other thing that we do too is uh, we actually have a have a company that uh, uses Ken's uh, rankings to um, 
adjust the plus minus stuff based on the equality, the quality of the opponent. So it, it first takes out all the quote unquote garbage time where it's, you know, the team's up 20 with two minutes left. Those possessions we just admit completely. Uh, and then after that, it'll, it'll adjust for, okay, if you played even at Arizona, you know, that'll be uh, adjusted up to plus 0.15 or whatever it would, it would translate to uh, on an efficiency margin uh, standpoint. Whereas if you play even at home against the, the last ranked team in Ken's rankings, you know, that'll get adjusted down. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress, I guess, in the last year or two, really, in terms of developing uh, adjusted plus minus metrics. You know, the kind of stuff that you see in the NBA that is pretty useful. There's a number of different flavors out there, but um, you're starting to see that at the college level. I've dabbled in that myself. It's a, it's a, it's a huge, huge challenge. It's a bigger challenge in college than it is in the NBA. A, there, there's more teams, more players fewer games, uh, more garbage time, more players who, you know, don't see the bench very often. Uh, there's a lot of that stuff going on. So, uh, um, but we're getting closer to having better measures like that. So um, I guess I don't want to downplay the concept of plus minus, but just using it from a raw sense without accounting for who's playing or who your teammates are or the context of the game, whether you're up 20 or the game's tied or something like that. Um, there's some, some pitfalls definitely involved there. Yeah. I've always heard it described as a stat that's very noisy because it's just got, you know, so, so many factors, right. Pouring into it, trying to, you know, you know, like as a football fan, right. Trying to account for, okay, what's, what's the running back, what's the offensive line. Right. And, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of trying to figure out all of that, with plus minus and you know john i'm kind of curious with you so i think you kind of referenced this but but i kind of want to make sure i was hearing it right so when you're looking at combinations front court back court that kind of stuff i presume you're also looking at more than just points plus minus but looking at things like rebounds or maybe turnovers or assists or or whatever yeah so we have a, a whole program that's been built out over a few years that actually gives us all the four factors um, when that guy is on the court or when that pair is on the court. Um, and we will, you know, Ken may not like this, but we, we will look at it and go, all right, why are we not defensive rebounding well with this group? And is it, is it a issue of do it better uh, where we can do a better job blocking out? Is it an issue of uh, this personnel just can't do that? Uh, and this is kind of how it's going to be. And if we want to make that uh, area defensive rebounding or whatever it may be better, we have to make a substitution. Uh, or is this a style of play thing where maybe it's a ball screen coverage where we're playing undersized, we're giving up too many twos. Do we need to play more up the line, blitz some stuff, you know, try to keep the ball away from the rim. Um, so we'll use it as like quick little uh, looks into kind of the tenor of the game uh, when those guys are in and then uh, and, and at the at all times trying to keep into account the, the sample size issues and not really drawing any big conclusions from uh, small data. So, John, I'll ask you this. Do you think looking at, you know, just let's just talk about like defensive rebounding. Is there like 
is there a serious like interaction effect between teammates like do you gain i guess my thought on this has always been i can probably do just as well figuring out how a lineup is going to rebound just looking at their individual rebound percentages um, yeah so there, i would actually push back on there? that okay. i would push back on that and and this is maybe something unique about our our system uh but we really really try to block out and it's a big part of uh how we coach and it, it goes back to saint mary's when when coach smith and coach bennett kind of first developed the hustle stats. Uh, and so we use a lot, uh, our fours and fives, especially to try to just take their guy out of the play. Now, now this year was maybe not the best indicator of that. Our Columbia teams were a bigger indicator of that, but we would use our fours and fives to kind of take their fours and fives out of the play because those are the guys that usually get the most offensive rebounds for every team. Uh, and then we would use our guards to kind of come in and gang rebound and clean it up. Now, practically speaking, your bigs are still going to get more rebounds than your guards, even doing it that way. Um, but we found that has helped our, our defensive rebound. So for this year, uh, like Jeff Pollard was a, is a graduating, uh, a senior, uh, good player for us. It started a lot of games and his, his defensive rebounding numbers are, are not very high. Um, especially for, for the position and this level. Uh, but Jeff's one of the best we've ever coached on blocking out. And so uh, according to the plus minus stuff over the course of the year, we were a little bit better defensive rebounding team when he was in the game uh, than even when we subbed in some guys that corralled more rebounds themselves. Gotcha. So that explains CJ Ellaby's elevated defensive rebounding percentage yeah like whenever he was at the three he would just kind of pin his ears back and go try to grab the ball for the most part yeah i gotta think you guys uh john when 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 you came in and saw cj he was already a pretty good defensive rebounder under under ernie kent but uh you you got a guy that a six six guy that has a three skill set that you know you can crush that can has a pretty good instinct for rebounding it it they can just crash the boards. That must've been pretty nice for you guys when you came in. No, it was great. He, he helped us a lot there. Uh, and then the, the one thing that was, that was tricky for him and, and kind of new for him to get used to is when he did play the four, uh, we had to try to get him to, to block out more. <laughs> it was, it was a good problem to have because he's so gifted at, at going and getting the ball and traffic. Um, but for some of these guys, some of the athletes you go against at the four when we're playing a little undersized, uh, we, we want him just to keep his guy from getting the ball. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, and that was the nature of your lineup this year. <laughs> yeah, 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 they put <laughs> CJ at the four, especially yeah. with the injuries. Yeah, back to that again. Uh, Ken, since now we're talking about WSU players, I, I, I want to ask you about um, offensive efficiency and – uh, so WCU had a player this year who was a bit of a, uh, he was a high volume, high volume shooter, uh, named Isaac Bonton. And he was, he was sort of a source of consternation for a lot of fans because he did shoot so much and his efficiency was, um, in general, not real great. However, you know, it was really interesting. Um, you know, he was, uh, injured for a couple games and the offense was 
very, very difficult without him. And one thing that I always find interesting is trying to do the calculus in my head of, of how you balance a player's efficiency with their usage um, and try to kind of come to some equilibrium of, okay, you know, you know, this, this guy maybe is, is using a lot of possessions out of necessity. Therefore his, you know, true efficiency talent level is probably higher than what is showing and then and then kind of vice versa and, and back to jeff pollard for a sec so you know jeff pollard 15 percent usage um you know had an offensive rating though of 118 and but obviously you may not want to you know double that guy's shots just because his efficiency is really good so I, I guess what i'm saying is like when when you look at a team page and you see all these players and their efficiencies and their usage how do you kind of try to make sense out of balancing uh, usage and efficiency? Uh, it's pretty tricky. Um, there's, like, there's no question. I think players have sort of like basketball personalities. And obviously, uh, you know, Jeff Pollard's personality is not to be the uh, offensive go-to guy. <laughs> and, you know, likewise, Isaac Bonton is just, he's going to get up shots. Like you may be able to coach him a little bit and, and get him to be a little more selective, but you know, for the most part, that's just, that's just his nature. And, and uh, some of that you have to live with. Uh, I think, you know, obviously playing Washington state, like I guess I wouldn't mind Isaac Bonton taking shots. Like, I, you know, you look at his two point percentage at 36% and, you know, there's probably a lot of difficult twos that he's taking. And so Absolutely. to that extent, uh, you know, you're going to be okay with that, but, uh, but it is tricky. You know, obviously if, you, know, you could pull back some of those bad shots and just reduce that usage to the mid twenties and see that offensive rating go up. I think distributing those shots to other people um, would serve the offense better, but distributing all of those shots to Jeff Pollard probably wouldn't serve the offense. better. So it is, you know, it is kind of a challenge. Oh, that'd be so many jump hooks though. Um, <laughs> but is there, is there like a, like a quick and dirty formula that you use? Like, okay, reducing, you know, usage by this many percentage generally results in this kind of an uptick in, in offensive rating. Yes. Uh, I believe, so I haven't necessarily done this work at the college level. It's really tricky actually to kind of figure that out. Uh, because it seems like there would be a curve to it. Yes, right. And there's the, the work I've seen at the NBA level. I believe it's a trade-off of like 2.5 in offensive rating for every one percent. So you, know, you, you take one percent off of a guy's usage, and his offensive rating should go up by 2.5. Um, but it is tricky. You know, people uh, Dean Oliver pioneered the, the skill curve concept, where basically you know you can look, you can just chart a guy's uh, offensive rating by his usage and kind of look at it on the game level. But it is very tricky because, you know, if you just do the raw value pretty much, you're almost going to get a straight line. Like when when players are not feeling it or they're playing, you know, they're in a situation where the defense is keying on them or there's just a bad matchup or whatever, they're just naturally going to decrease their usage and you're probably not going to see their offensive rating increase in those situations. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a very tricky thing to kind of detect. But, uh, yeah, it, it seems like a, a pretty reasonable estimate that, you know, 2.5 points in offensive rating per 1% usage is, is probably about right. So, yeah, if we get Bonton down to 25, then he's he's about 100, 100 uh, O-rating, uh, over 100 O-rating player. So that sounds pretty good. Um, that that yeah. does seem much closer to his skill set 
Um, he did have to take, I mean, if you watch the Cougs, like Bonton took, yeah, he, a lot of difficult two pointers. Um, and it really was a, you know, out of necessity quite often. Um, I, I you know, like it, it's, it's funny, like balancing it, you know, us as these stat nerds, um, but actually watching Bonton play about 10 games into the season, you, you kind of figured out, um, what the coaching staff was looking for him. I, and obviously John, you're here, you can speak to that, but what looking for from him and, and, and how important he was. And then it was this kind of unique situation where towards the end of the season, he was out for two games and you, all the fans absolutely like immediately saw like what this guy meant to the team. And it's funny, even in our little like group of writers on our website, uh, that, that maybe we're a little Bonton haters before suddenly came around to him. And yeah, it's, it's kind of this hard thing to explain to people who, who just kind of take passing glances at your numbers and stuff is that there's a lot more context to them. Like then, 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 uh, then, then, then it looks like it's not just this, um, this player is better than this player because they have a higher offensive rating. And, and, um, I, I think you've, you've done, you've, done some good job explaining some of the stuff in your writing but um what has been some kind of some of like the harder things for you to um explain uh to people um i i know obviously uh it, these slow tempo teams uh defensive minded teams like wisconsin and <laughs> and and the bennett's and stuff or, you know tony bennett um seem to have uh people seem to uh, look at those and 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 you've found you know, the Wisconsin problem over and over again. So it, what's something like that, that you, you, you kind of come back to and, and makes you reevaluate? Uh, so uh, I guess let's uh, clarify here what we want to talk about. Is, like, are you talking about things that are just like misperceptions? Yeah. Yeah. Misperceptions for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I guess the one thing that like always kind of uh, still disappoints me, like I feel like the still there's an overuse of field goal percentage. Um, yeah, I get that it's kind of a legacy statistic that we've had, you know, almost since the beginning of basketball stats, but uh, you know we're just talking about Isaac Bonton and his two point percentage. I mean, to me, you know, you'll see a guy who takes a lot of threes and then they'll talk about his field goal percentage isn't very good or something. Well, the reason his field goal percentage isn't very good is because he takes a lot of threes. And obviously when he's making those shots, um, they're worth more than most shots that other people are taking. And so to me, it's a very simple, like, just a very simple thing that like any audience could understand if you just split things up into two point percentage and three point percentage and understand um, the differences there. And then an extension of that is that um, you know, obviously there's a lot of like variance and luck in three point percentage. There's no doubt. There's obviously skill there as well, but on a game level, on a 10 game stretch level, a lot of variation in three point percentage, whereas you can't fake two point percentage. Uh, you can't fake being good or yeah, you can't fake being good at it. First of all, offensively or defensively. Um, you know, if you're bad at, at two point percentage defense, that's going to show up very quickly. It's going to stabilize very quickly. And to me, it's just like a really like easy point of analysis like especially early in the season to just kind of drill down on that and yet um people kind of overlook that and just still there's a lot of old school uh work where people just refer to field goal percentage and uh in 2000 2020 it's kind of uh 
frustrating that we're still at that point because I don't think it's like a hard transition to make. Like anyone can understand what two point percentage because they know what field goal percentage is. So you don't even have to explain it to them, but, uh, but we still struggle with that. Well, Ken, you'd, you'd be happy to know then that on uh, every scouting report we do, we do not include field goal percentage and we instead put uh, two point percentage, three point percentage, and then what percentage of that player's shots are threes. I love it. Yeah, that's, I mean, those are, those are the things I think every analyst should be looking at for, for a team and, and obviously for a player as well. But I mean, that's the, really the first thing I look at for a team, if I'm going to watch a game or just want to do some research on a team. Um, yeah. Twos, threes, and then the, the percentage of shots from three, like those are the, the, it's the Holy Trinity of uh, a field goal percentage, basically. The, the guys we struggle with on, on how to guard in those scouts are guys that, for instance, take 70% of their shots as threes, but don't shoot a good percentage on those. It's like, like, what do you do? Like, if a guy takes 80% of his shots as threes and shoots a great percentage, it's it's pretty simple scout. Don't let him shoot any threes, you know? But if a guy's taking a lot of them and using them at a rate that uh, – on paper at least in that run through the year or two years of data or whatever it is, is not helping their team. So we shoot 25% on threes. You know, what do you do? Do you just leave that guy open? And we've, we've tried that in some games. Do you say, all right, well, he's shooting 25% on shots that are, you know, presumably the defense is trying to guard, but if we give them uncontested shots, maybe that goes to 35% or 33% where it's not as good. Yeah, that's uh, that's the thing is that you know their their numbers are, are a reflection of the past and they're not necessarily a reflection of their uh, true skill and trying to figure that out is uh, um, a challenge. Like you say, you know, if it's a guy's a twenty five percent shooter and you leave him open, he's going to shoot better than twenty five percent. So what can you live with? Um, I mean, historically, you know, generally there's a rule of thumb. You know, if you want to predict a guy's three-point percentage going forward, his three-point attempt rate is uh, very useful in doing that. Maybe not, yeah. you know, depending on where you are in the season. Later in the season, his, his three-point percentage is a better predictor than his three-point rate. But if you really, you know, you're early in the year and the guy's taken 33s in the first three games and he's made 25% of them, chances are very strong that he's better than a 25% shooter. Like, he's he doesn't have that kind of green light because he sucks at three-point shooting. So um, that's the stuff, you know, I guess that I've become obsessed with. More recently, is just the numbers are the numbers, but what is the guy's true skill in these categories? And, and that's a little bit harder to figure out. Yeah, yeah. yeah we saw that with, with Ellaby this year. He, um, his three-point percentage dipped. And I know a lot of uh, players' three-point percentage dipped, obviously, because the, uh, the line moved back. But his dipped quite a bit. But last year he had you know, a guy who's in the developmental league right now as a, as a scorer alongside him and, and, and kind of taking that attention away from the defense. He was shooting a lot more spot up threes and this year he's shooting a lot more off the dribble one-on-one type threes. And, and, uh, and you, you wouldn't suddenly say that, um, Ellaby is a worse three point shooter. He actually shot 90 more threes this year than he did last year. Um, but, uh, uh, you you'd still not a guy you would want to leave open and i'm sure john would be very happy if the other team left him open for three yeah no doubt no doubt Uh, those are the guys that are really tricky to scout are the guys that use a ton of possessions uh because 
you know, you might play a guy like the guys that use a ton of possessions. Sometimes their efficiency is their O rating is just lower, just in virtue of how large a load they have to carry. And I think you get in a lot of trouble uh, when you try to guard that guy less or de-emphasize him on a scouting report just because his O rating is 85 or 92 or something like that. John, do you ever hope that the coach on the other team, uh, the coaching staff, isn't quite? Um, uh, may, maybe they've just discovered Ken Palm, and and they're maybe using it in, in that way. They're like, oh well, uh, you know, this guy's got an eighty-five O rating. He's taking thirty percent of the shots, but he's only got an eighty-five O rating. So we'll just leave him open. So, <laughs> do you ever do you ever hope, or do you ever come across that in your in your opposing coaching staffs? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean. For sure. I, I mean, we talked about Isaac earlier. Uh, you would not want to leave that guy open. <laughs> that would not be a good strategy. Because uh, if he gets an open three, uh, he's going to bang it. He's a good shooter. He just, for us, he has to take some pretty hard shots. You know, and, and on the flip side of it, when we're scouting a guy that uses uh, possessions at that rate, a lot of times we'll emphasize to the team like the reason his shooting percentages are low is because you can coax him into taking these type of shots. And so we'll show a couple clips of a guy taking a tough, you know, step back mid range, pull up two, or, uh, or something like that. And we'll say, Hey, we're good with these shots. Two's over a hand. We want him taking these. Uh, but the play is where he's ripping downhill, getting to the rim and drawing a, drawing a foul, or he's stepping into a catch and shoot three, uh, even for the guy at that 90 rating or 92 or 87, those are probably still going to be good shots for him. You know, his O rating is low because he's taking a lot more harder shots. Harder shots are always better than a turnover. <laughs> yeah, true. That is true. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's that, actually an interesting point. That was our offensive philosophy this year. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that was definitely uh, uh, low turnovers. And it seemed to be – at times, your defensive philosophy this year too is to um, uh, force more turnovers uh, when when that w- when that opportunity presented itself, rather than you know trying to defend maybe uh, a team that's five inches taller than you on the on the interior. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Just a quick follow up on that with Ken. It, it seems anecdotally that more teams are going to uh, turnover pressure on defense and also. Uh, reduction of turnover on offense just as a philosophy is that you look obviously at the big picture a lot more than than I do is that is that something that seems true to you or is that just something that's in my head uh I don't know I, I mean I don't know how you would detect that obviously those are two two opposing forces right so uh I mean to me the the trend over time has seemed to be uh players are less mistake prone and I don't, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why that could be, but you know, players just commit kind of fewer ball handling turnovers and things like that uh, over time, certainly fewer than they did like 20 years ago. Now maybe things have leveled off since then. So I don't know if I have a really uh, unique insight into that other than um, it does seem like turnovers are, vanishing a little bit although did they they did go up a little bit last year if i recall i'm just gonna pull that up yeah turnover percentage went up slightly last year for the first time in a while but um yeah i mean for the most part you know we're at 
historic lows, basically, when it comes to turnovers. Are, are you trying to tell us that uh, players are actually uh, still learning the <laughs> fundamentals and they haven't forgotten how to shoot and pass the ball and dribble? And that, and that they might actually be more fundamental now? Yes, yes. I guess that, yeah, that's uh, that's one of those uh, pet peeves of mine, right? That, uh, yeah, people, old-timers criticizing players for lack of fundamentals because, yeah, when you, whatever stat you want to look at, it seems like this year wasn't maybe the the best for shooting, but there were reasons for that. But obviously until this year, you know, we've seen this consistent climb in shooting percentages and free throw percentages and a drop in turnover percentage and just all the things, all the statistical things you would think about with regard to fundamentals uh, seem to be getting better, which makes, you know, it makes sense. Players are playing more than ever. The, uh, you know, the grassroots circuit has matured to a point where play, you know, the great players are playing against other great players and really like kind of game controlled environments in a way that they weren't necessarily 20 years ago. So it would make sense that players are, are more skilled than, than they ever have been. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fight that fight whenever you guys want. Yeah. Well, and you know, listen, people will also say things like they don't watch the NBA because it's not fundamental. And (laughs) I just, my head wants to explode because I'm, yeah. Like, I'm like, you You know, you might actually be telling on yourself about something else, but I'll go ahead and leave that one there. Yeah, if you look um, at turnover rates in the NBA compared to college, it's pretty oh wild. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing I know that you are uh, an expert at and in the business of is, as you mentioned, predicting and an, a, a sort of a, a byproduct of that is projecting. And so... Um, you know, as you're, as you're projecting from one season to the next, and, and that's another thing that people sometimes get wrapped up in is, you know, the early season movement and the rankings that incorporate the projections. But as you're, I imagine you've been doing the, you know, season projection thing now for, I think about 10 years. How do you go about kind of trying to figure out um, how much each player is anticipated to improve? So, you know, is it, is it as simple as, you know, a percentage improvement from a you know freshman to sophomore, sophomore, junior, junior to senior, is it something more like um, trying to figure out you know usages and and how much that determines how much a guy will improve? What kind of goes into that? And and then as a as a kind of a secondary question to that, um, between which years? So anecdotally, most people I think say that the biggest improvement comes between freshman and sophomore year. Uh, do you find that to be true, or or does the data bear something different out? Uh, so the second part is, is yes, that is true. Like younger players tend to improve more from year to year. Uh, as far as like the projections go, it's, it's a little hard to explain. So it it is mostly, I don't know, it's let's say half like team based and half player based. Like there's player information in there. It's looking at, you know, how good a team has been the past few years. And then it's looking at who's coming back from the roster and what other players are, coming in that either have previous division one experience or are a top 100 recruit. Um, So that's the player level information that goes in there, but it's not necessarily projecting stats for a player for next year. It's basically looking at, it's looking at their role and it's looking at their class and it's looking at kind of various stats. So, you know, points, uh, rebounds, assists, what they contributed to the team last year and uh, using that to project teams' offensive and defensive rating going forward. So I, you know, I can't tell you where, like, uh, you know, a specific player. I can't tell you what they're going to do next year. That's not what the system does exactly, but um, it does basically um, 
you know, use that information. You know, players usage was blah. It's not necessarily usage per se, but it's like field goal attempts. How many field goal attempts did the guy take as a share of the entire team? Um, that makes sense. And if that guy's coming back, then the team will improve more. If that guy's leaving, um, the, the team takes a pretty good hit. So like, Kyra Lewis just basically, you know, uh, committed to the draft, and I think I had Alabama like. 14th in the country before then and they dropped to like 34th or something uh, because of his absence so obviously if you know some bench warmer left Alabama you know they wouldn't have dropped hardly at all but because it's basically their most important player they get they get hit pretty hard and so, I, so we want CJLB to come back is that is that what I'm gathering <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean you know I I would say I, uh, I mean Jeff hit the nail on the head like I, I have I have been doing this the past 10 years and if if he were to come back, if there were no real other personnel changes, like uh, this would be the highest preseason rating for the Cougars since uh, the first year I did this, which was Clay Thompson's last year. So Woo. that gives Woo. you something to think about. You're, you're putting pressure on us. Don't do yeah. that. <laughs> Don't let him leave, John. Don't let him yeah, leave. We need, to, we need to get that little audio clip and send it to CJ and just feel yeah, like, there you hey, go. Man, we got a chance. So – Ken, when you're doing these projections, uh, one thing I think about when uh, um, WC brought in a couple grad transfers last year, um, they could be seeking another one this year. Uh, and a lot of times with, with WSU, the, the grad transfers come from a mid-major or low-major program, and, they, and then they, they transfer over. H- how do you how do you factor in uh, a player who's coming from basically a you know a comp a lower competition conference and, and coming up to a major conference? So uh, that's a great question. And I should point out here too, like I'm for the, for about 99% of the, the algorithm, like I'm not going and saying, okay, you know, if this happens, right. this team gets two points and that, you know, it's all based on history and it's just a giant regression and, um, and that's how it works. So when it comes to the transfers, yeah, there is a, a team effect. Basically it looks at, Hey, how good was the team that he came from and how good is the team that he's going to and how good were they last year so it's not a perfect a perfect model you'd want to know how good they were i guess expected to be this year but it's just easier to look at last year's um ratings and uh and so yeah so if you're you're an up transfer obviously your effect is going to be diminished somewhat you know if your offensive rate basically the way it works is like you know your offensive rating will actually go up as you go to a better team but your usage will go down which yeah I think makes it too. I, I, um, your your buddy Jeff Goodman. I, I saw him do. A, he did a, an analysis, but with without any sort of um, hard stats really on that. And I've re- I've wanted to kind of dive in and look at that myself, just using advanced stats. Um, but yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, what about John? From your perspective, when 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 you guys are evaluating transfers from uh, mid major uh, schools, uh, what what's how do you do that calculus? Uh, well, first off, it's it's very difficult <laughs> uh, because you're you're trying to look at what ecosystem the player was in before in terms of how good was his team, uh, how good were his teammates, and you're trying to project him up. And I think it's I think it's really an inexact science. Uh, and there's been a lot of guys that we've been surprised by in, in both directions. Uh, where they were guys that scored 18 a game at a lower mid-major school, 
and then they went to a BCS program and, you know, now they're scoring three points a game. Um, now, on the other hand, there have been some guys that we kind of did not think would uh, would translate over as well. And they've done well. So it's it's a mixed bag. It's an inexact science. Uh, and that's where we, we try to dive into the film more to to help us. Well, I, I would point out someone who, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't make you say anything, but but obviously from Jeff and I as, as a fan's perspective, like Tony Miller coming from um, Division II school um, into the Pac-12, uh, we didn't have, you know, high expectations. Um, uh, and then suddenly he turns into this very effective offensive player um, and, and, and a very athletic, like a very athletic defensive player that, you know, you you guys are putting at the four a six five guy from you know that had previously played at Seattle Pacific. So um, I can see where yeah, sometimes it's you get surprised, and then sometimes it you know it just doesn't work out. But um, yeah, that, that's obviously a, a, an interesting thing. And then you guys took a lot of uh, you know you took some J- JC transfers. Um, I thought it was very interesting. Um, just one final thing on the projections is that um, WSU came. I think it was about in the one sixties to start this year. Um, after several seasons of um, hovering 180 to 200 or so, um, do do you factor the coach's history? Is there, is in the algorithm? Is there a coach's history in, in that projection, Ken? Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's uh, it's very simple. Uh, maybe I'll make it work. Maybe I can work something more complicated into it this year. Although there's so few coaching changes this season that will make much difference, but. Um, Basically, you get dinged for a coaching change, pretty much, unless you're just one of the worst teams in in, in Division One. You you won't get dinged as much. You may even get a little bit of a bump, but for the most part, you get dinged if you change coaches. Uh, but the exception is if you have a coach who has previous Division One experience, you don't get dinged as much. Um, so that's the entirety of the logic that goes into that. That was interesting. So I I I, I had thought that maybe because uh, Kyle Smith had a nice track record that they got a little boost, but apparently it was maybe just some of the returning minutes like CJ Elby and stuff that that, that gave the boost. But um, yeah, so uh, John, I know you had some questions. Um, I'd love to give you uh, uh, some time to ask Ken a question here. Yeah, so you know one of the things we've thought about for a long time with your site is uh, you do a great job uh, adjusting the offensive efficiency and the defensive efficiency for the quality of the opponent, right? So, you know, your site is able to take into account that scoring a 1.00 points per possession at Virginia, you know, who who finished first uh, defensively in your ratings last year is, is much more impressive and harder to do and, and a better uh, predictor of future offensive performance than, you know, scoring one point, Two zero points per possession against uh, the team that's that's the last rated uh, defensive team in your in your system. Um, so my my question is: Have you have you looked into it all uh, adjusting the four factors for strength of schedule in a similar way? You know, so uh, figuring out that you know one team has a very good defensive rebounding percentage, but maybe a big part of that is they've uh, faced a ton of teams that are very poor offensive rebounding teams, or do you feel that just in the long run it, it kind of washes and everybody's around uh, average? So I, I struggle with this. I, 
I'm not a, like I'm not opposed to, to adjusting the four factors. You, the points you make are great, and there there's always teams that come up. You know, like you you point out, you know, the, a team that looks really good at defensive rebounding. They play in a worse conference, and furthermore, that conference like all the other teams don't try to get offensive rebounds. So, of course, that team's defensive rebounding percentage looks great. Um, uh, I so so I, you know I don't think it all washes out, and I think there is a lot of context that um, <clears throat> is involved there, but. I guess what I struggle is, first of all, like uh, I like the fact that the the stats are, are raw and people can and people can just check them and, and, and you know they can make they can do the calculations on their own and, and make sure that I'm correct and so it is kind of transparent that way. Uh, the other point is like where would I where would I put that information <laughs> and then and then how would it be used? Um, I guess that's the issue. Like it, it kind of, you know, the, so with offensive and defensive efficiency, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, uh, um, you know, Washington state only allows, you know, 98 points per hundred possessions. And they're looking at my adjusted defense. And really that's right. not a true statement. Like it's obviously adjusted. And I guess, so I, I worry that uh, adjusting the four factors would be used in that way as well. So I, I'm open, like I'm totally open to suggestions. And if you would find it useful, that actually means a lot. Um, a lot of the stuff I've added to my site actually has been from the suggestion of coaches who say, Hey, you know, this actually would really help me out if you did this. So I'm certainly open to it. It's more, I think the limitation right now is more, I guess it's kind of site architecture almost like where yeah. would that information go? We, we for sure would use it. If there was a, a way to click a button that kind of made those four factors adjusted or unadjusted, um, we would use that. And then, and then the other one, if I can make a shameless, shameless request, is uh, if you would put the the three point uh, or percentage of shots that are threes uh, for each individual player, because that's that's the one thing left that I calculate by hand for uh, every scouting report, every guy that we play against. I will take that into consideration. You know, it's <laughs> you know what's funny is that I, I I'll just share this with you guys, but uh, I do have kind of a secret page that has uh, all the players broken down by by those kind of metrics. So it has like their assist, per, you know, their assist percentage on those shots, like how often those shots are assisted has their, you know, attempt percentage. Um, and I've never, I've just never been able to, to pull the trigger on making that page public, but, uh, but maybe I can do that this off season. Obviously I'll, I'll have a lot of time on my hands, but, uh, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, and I, and so I look at the secret page quite a bit, like, I, you know, how, what is the percentage of shots? Not just from threes, but you know, at the rim. Obviously, just just from play-by-play -play data. So it's not perfect, but uh, but I do have that information. It would you know, it wouldn't take me long to, to put it on the site. It's just uh, maintaining it and and making it look nice would uh, would be the challenge. Well, I I think the solution here is obvious. You just you know make that a premium feature for another you know ten bucks a year. Yeah, you get a Patreon, Ken. You need a Patreon. <laughs> Those would be that'll oh, be your Patreon level stuff. I gotta ask the price question. I gotta ask this. Uh, you know, obviously, a, a lot of your 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 site is invaluable. I mean, it's it's every year we say it's the best twenty bucks we spend, um, and you've kept it at that at that price for a while now. Um, is that is that a revenue maximization strategy? Is that uh, feeling that you want to just have the information out there as much as possible in order to make the uh, wider basketball community as, as educated as possible. Uh, what, what's the reason why you aren't charging us a million dollars a year? 
All right. Well, I get this question a lot, and it, it does maybe at first glance seem silly, but there, there's, there are many reasons here, and I'll, I'll lay them out. First is that obviously I could charge the Washington State basketball program uh, more money uh, for this. They would, they would pay more than $20 a year. I get that, but uh, most of my subscriber base is not made up of college basketball coaches. You know, it's mostly fans and, uh, and other assorted people that, uh, that pay for this. So that's one reason I can't charge like $100 a year. Um, the second point is that, uh, as time has gone on, you know, there's been, uh, a little more competition. There are, you know, other free alternatives to getting, um, advanced stats. And I think like hoop math, I guess, I think hoop math is the only other site maybe that charges. Yeah. So, um, so there's that as well. So the more you raise the price, the more you maybe drive people to check out possible other locations, um, for various pieces of information. And, uh, and the third, so that's basically the crux of it. Like for, I think on the short term, I'm, am I maximizing revenue? No, like I could move, I could raise the price point and I'd lose a few subscribers, but I'd make more money in general for like for the upcoming season, but kind of having a longer horizon looking, you know, three, four, five years down the road, um, keeping the price point pretty low is, very useful just to kind of maintain a larger subscriber base, which in turn, like I think increases word of mouth. It maybe makes it easier for the media to cite my information. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into play. And uh, that's not to say that I won't raise my price at some point. This I was really considering doing it this summer, but it's probably not the best time to do it. But, you know, down the road, it, you know, I may raise it, but, um, or I may go to something like, you know, like you guys are talking about having like a two tier system where there's a more premium content and people can pay for that. Like those are all options, but, uh, for the, for the most part, um, I do, it seems kind of stupid maybe on the, on the outside. And I've had people tell me this before, Oh, you need to raise your price. But I think, I don't think my business sense is like that bad right now. I think there are like legitimate reasons <laughs> to not raise the price too much. That kind of ties in pretty closely with another question I had on my list. So um, I started getting into your site back when Tony Bennett was our coach. Um, and it, it really was in that, um, you know, that first season of his when they, you know, jumped up and all of a sudden were a top 25 team and ended up in the tournament and all that. And um, there was there was sort of this, this disconnect between, um, you know, the idea that, you know, this team is really, really good. And, but you know, they're, they're, you know, for what we call now the counting stats, right. You know, the counting stats weren't very good. You know, this guy's, you know, they only average, you know, whatever, 60 points or 58 points or whatever it was as a team, but their defense is really, really great. Cause they only allow, you know, 55 points or whatever it is. And, and so, you know, when I found what you were doing, I was like, it, it just like made so much sense. I'm like, well, yeah, of course this, this is a way better way to measure most of this stuff, um, you know, and back then, you know, this is 12, 13 years ago, right? Like, like it was a really niche thing. Like there were not very many of us that were sort of, and I, and I'm sure you can attest to that given what your subscriptions are now versus, you know, actually back then I don't even think you had a subscription. Right. So it, so it's like, it was really niche back then. And, and, and then fast forward to today and, you know, you can tune into an ESPN broadcast and hear people talk about, 
things that they found on your page. Now they may not always do it correctly (laughs) (laughs) and, and they may, as you mentioned, right. And, and they may not always uh, say where they got it from, which is sort of uh, Mm -hmm. annoying to me. I don't, I kind of wonder if that's annoying to you. Um, But, but are you, at what point did you feel like, uh, you know, this was really taking hold and then were you, did you ever reach a point where you were sort of surprised that, um, that you became this, like this guru and I, I'm guessing that was not what you were shooting for. Correct. Yeah. When I started, I it was really um, just uh, you know a, a labor of love for myself. Like I was building something that I wanted to use, and I thought there would be like an audience for it, and other people would want to use it. Uh, but I also knew that it, you know, wasn't something that would you know be used by mainstream uh, media members or however you want to phrase it, um, just because a lot of the information was so new, and you did have to kind of dig in and. and you know, read things and kind of figure out how to understand it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the first point. Um, the second part, you know, am I surprised? Like it's, it's hard to answer that. Like I'm, I'm not surprised, but I don't mean to say that I'm like, I expected it. Like there's a two diff- different things. It's just that, um, it, you know, it's been so incremental along the way that there's never been that point where it's like, Whoa, I can't believe, you know, I'm in this newspaper or I can't believe that this guy on TV mentioned me. Like at this point, it's not too surprising when somebody mentions me. And even, you know, 10 years ago when I would, you know, uh, I guess they, Pete Thamel did the feature in the New York times. Like that was really cool and awesome, but I wasn't like too surprised that, you know, somebody was interested in my work. So I'm not saying that I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not surprised because I'm like super arrogant about it. I'm like, oh yeah, I knew I'd be a success. Like I didn't <laughs> yeah. even think about that. I, I guess that's the point is I really never thought in those terms, but just the, the way things have evolved incrementally, there hasn't been like time to be surprised. Certainly 2005 me would have been surprised at the way things have, have evolved, but I am really bad at like having a five year, you know, kind of long-term vision about anything. So I never even contemplated where things would be in 15 years without even be still doing it, you know? And yeah, it was, do it was you fun. get annoyed when they reference a stat from Great your question. page yeah. and then don't reference you because I get annoyed on your behalf. Right. Oh, I appreciate that. And I guess I should point out, you know, I don't expect people to reference me every time they use a stat. Like I, you know, there's, there's no need to do that, but I do think <laughs> The first time you reference it, like if that's where you're getting the information, like it's just good form to say where you're getting it from. You know, the one thing that annoyed me all season living here in Salt Lake City, uh, the Pac-12 network is really egregious about this. Yes. Yes, Yes, they are. And all (laughs) as we know season, you know, like there's definitely some stats on my site you can get elsewhere. So there's, you know, I'm never totally sure where people are getting it from, but they kept, I mean, I'd watch Utah games and they would keep referring to the fact that they were like the third youngest team in college basketball. And I don't know where else you're getting that information, but on my site, they're listed as the <laughs> third youngest team in college basketball. And like just once, like it's not even necessarily like good form, but it's also like, I could, I could have an error in my calculation. So you might want to just take, you know, take some cover here and just like mention where you got it from. Cause I could be totally wrong. Like I'd have an, I, you know, maybe they're like really the eighth youngest team right? and I have an error that actually happened. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a glitch in the way I was calculating bench minutes where if the fifth <laughs> and sixth most players were tied in minutes, it like counted the sixth player and the fifth player as a starter. And, uh, <laughs> and so like early in the season, Kansas was listed as having like, you know, 300, they were like 352nd in bench minutes or something. And Jesse Newell of the Kansas city star, like referred to it in a column. And, uh, 
and all the fans were like, what are you talking about? Like we play our bench a lot. And Jesse asked me about it and I was like, Oh crap. You know, I, I guess. <laughs> and so that's the main reason I think like, it's obviously good form to credit people, but it's also just like, you might as well list a source because you don't know that this information is going to be stone cold accurate every time. It's... Well, I, I'm texting Kyle Smith right now, and uh, we are taking up the Pac-12 Network crusade. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's funny to that point. Like Jeff talks about being mad when he hears that because he, I know you got that from Ken Pop. But like we've we've been following the site for so long that I I remember when there was that article when Butler and I've joked about it in the intro. Uh, when Butler went to the Final Four, when when uh, Brad Stevens says, "Yeah, after every game, I go and I sit down, and I open my laptop to Kempom dot com," and I remember that being kind of one of the first like mainstream whatever you want to call it articles. Like because before that, like it, it felt like this battle, and we we even have this other site in our kind of little WSU sphere that for years just battled us, and like other sites would mock us for using these like these nerd stats or whatever. And so you kind of built this like following of like, of hardcores. Um, do you feel that like the, because, uh, I, we would, we became like sort of these like champions of, uh, you know, tempo free stats because of your website. And, and, and then obviously Jeff and I got involved enough to, you know, write for bas- college basketball prospectus and ESPN and stuff. But, but there was still like we we were building those people on our site, and like there's all these people that just all, all of a sudden when 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 you have Brad Stevens mentioning it, um, was that something? Were you already kind of past that point where it did, like yeah, I I know coaches are looking at my stuff, or was that still at that point felt kind of cool that it was mentioned that a Final Four coach mentioned your, that he was looking at your website, and I think it was still free at that point. Yeah, I think that was the last year it was free. <laughs> <laughs> that was not an accident. Uh, Pretty good advertising. Right. right. Yeah, that was great. I mean, it, so it's great that it's there's a Final Four coach that's mentioning it. It's also great that, uh, you know, he was Brad Stevens, who was obviously doing things at Butler that, uh, you know, at the time and certainly in retrospect seem unfathomable. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and obviously him, you know, moving on. But, I mean, uh, yeah, no question. I mean, when people say, you know, was there a turning point where things really, like, got big for you and there really isn't but if there's one time you can point to it's certainly that piece was of any single like piece of media that i was involved in that was the biggest one well yeah um it it was yeah it was fun for us uh what about what about you john from a coach's perspective um um, you you're younger than me uh but uh, you uh, when, when did you kind of latch on to the, these, uh, these numbers? Yeah. So, so my career kind of started as a, as a manager at Columbia under coach Smith and pretty quickly, I would say that freshman year, I, I found out about the site, uh, and, and didn't totally understand it at first. And, uh, that's when I bought basketball on paper, uh, from Dean Oliver and kind of, poured through that and, and try to get my hands on any, uh, information I could. And, and I think I've read every single, uh, Ken Pomeroy blog post, uh, even going back years before, <laughs> before I was looking at it, uh, and just trying to get familiar with it. And as, uh, we got more familiar with it as a staff, we, we started incorporating it more and more into our program in terms of, uh, 
goals that we create for the team every year uh, in terms of player development plans on, you know, raising two point percentage, raising efficiency, you know, some guys lowering usage or raising usage uh, in terms of team goals for the next year. Like maybe a goal might be we want to be a top 30 defensive rebounding team or we want to be in the top 50 of uh, not turning it over, uh, things like that. So as we've gotten more and more familiar with this site, it's become a bigger and bigger part of our program. And Ken, how, how have you, uh, do you, does each year, do you have more and more coaches reach out to you? I do. Um, yeah. It, uh, it seems also like the last couple of weeks I've had more coaches reach out than ever really because. Because <laughs> they got nothing bored. else yeah, to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're like, give me something I can right. use. Give me something I can work with. Right. Yeah. When people ask me about, you know, how, uh, how many team subscriber, whatever. I don't track it, but I, my gut is that pretty much, you know, every team is subscribing by now. I feel like every team subscribes just about, there may be a, a handful that don't, but every team subscribes probably about like 150 use it on a regular basis. And then maybe like 50 really know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, of that 150, there's probably two thirds are using it because other people use it, but they're maybe not using it as, as critically or as properly as they, they should be. So, um, well, I think what, what Coug fans would want to hear is, uh, do you think WSU is one of those 50 or one of those 150? (laughs) No comment. No, No, I'm I'm sure they're in the, in the 50. They're probably in the, in the top 10, the way it sounds. Yeah. So, uh, Ken, is there, so we've, we've gone through, we've been firing questions at you like crazy. Are, are there questions maybe that you are, or a question or multiple questions that you, things that are on your brain since you have an assistant coach here sitting with you and, and things that maybe you're, you're curious about? Cause I know that like, whenever I hear you do a, a podcast with another coach, that's always one of the more interesting parts to me. Cause like you always have these things in your head that, you know, you love picking, picking a coach's brain. Yeah, um, kind of put me on the spot there. So yeah, sorry, <laughs> that's my. Bad. I probably have about after we're done, I'll have about fifty questions that <laughs> I would have liked to have asked. But I know I can always contact John and, and get him to comment at least off the record. But yeah, it would be nice to get some comments on the record. But uh, um, yeah, what's what's one of the blog posts that you hated the most, John? <laughs> Oh wow! You, you just you just flipped yeah. it around. You, uh, you put me on the on the spot here. Uh, well, let me let me say this, uh, and I may be I may be guilty of a of a Jim Beheim here and uh, mis misattributing a, a stat column to you. But um, I believe you at one point uh, made a remark about matchups and how you know basically the if you're just going off the, the Ken Palm ranks and adjusting for home and away, that sort of thing, uh, you're a little bit skeptical of there being stuff beyond that uh, that makes a big difference in terms of win probability. Is that is that a fair attribution? That is a fair attribution, yeah. I, I mean, I would love to uh, disprove that idea, I guess, mathematically, but I take it you're going to, uh, you're going to help me do that here. Well, I don't know about disproving it, uh, 
but I, I am a proponent of matchups uh, in terms of uh, I just think there are some teams, and it may not be as simple as the four factors, uh, where maybe how you guard a ball screen fits very well or very poorly with how they attack ball screens or run them or don't run them. Uh, and I think that can shift the percentage slightly. So I guess my, my theory would be you could have two teams that are, let's say, exactly the same. They're number 100 Ken Palm, uh, but they're, the way they play is totally different. Uh, and for your team, maybe you got a 52% chance of beating Team A and a 39% chance of beating Team B. Uh, just because of, of how you play or how you guard things or, you know, uh, their proclivity for getting certain positions in foul trouble, uh, things like that. So uh, I, I don't want to give any uh, bulletin board material to anybody in our league, so I guess I'll, I'll stay out of our league. Um, but when I was at Dartmouth last year, uh, we just felt we matched up really well with Harvard. Um, we, we guarded ball screens with ice on the side of the, on each side of the floor. Uh, they always played two non-shooter bigs. Uh, and so for the fact that they were a decent offensive team, we felt like we could guard them. And then on the other side of the ball, uh, we just thought the way they guarded things, we could get some assisted baskets and specifically open threes. Um, you know, so so I think we were uh, 29% on your site to win the first game at home and then uh, 20% to win the second game on the road. Uh, and, and, you know, we ended up winning the first game by uh, 15 points and, and we lost the second one close. We had a free throw to tie with 30 seconds left. But uh, if you played that out for 100 games, I really think we could have won 40 of them instead of the, you know, 25% or so that the that the math would would suggest uh i'm probably wrong i'm probably using a small sample size here but that's my feel anecdotally from coaching over the last few years right i uh so i don't uh i don't discount what you're saying um i think where i where i tend to cringe so I, I mean i appreciate that perspective where i where i where i get more defensive is i guess more maybe not necessarily talking to coaches but just hearing it seems to be like a a buzzword among media members to make somebody sound smart, you know, where it's like, well, you know, this team could win it all, but it's all about matchups. And I, you know, I'd really don't like the matchup against this team and they don't really necessarily explain like why it's a bad matchup. But uh, so I, that always leaves me a little skeptical, but I do, I guess the thing I think about in more of a general sense is teams that tend to dominate uh, lesser, you know, they're, they're, they're in a lesser conference and they dominate their opposition in a way from the scoring margin that makes you think they could hang with like really good teams in power five leagues. And then they end up getting that opportunity and like the athletic disparity comes into play in a way that you don't necessarily see when they're playing other competition. And, and so they're maybe not as good against elite teams as you would expect. Kind of, you know, really similar to what you were talking about earlier with the transfers, you know, guys transferring up, and there's clearly, I think you guys didn't talk about it, but to me, there's like kind of an athletic barrier that you have to meet to successfully transfer up and still be a, you know, a contributing player. And I think it's similar on a team level as well. Like, uh, I don't know, they have a great example. I guess the, the example that comes to mind is, you know, when Gonzaga met 
North Carolina in the national championship game, what, three, three, four years ago. Um, you know, you could see there was clearly an athletic advantage. Like, Gonzaga was probably the more skilled team, but North Carolina wasn't far behind, and they had a certain athletic advantage, which, um, you know, allowed them to be the superior team when you look at – if you looked at more scoring margin-related stats, you know, Gonzaga should have been the favorite. But mm-hmm. in watching the game, it, it seemed like legitimately like North Carolina was a better team, maybe not by much, but – but they were. Yeah, I, you know, I, I piggybacking on that, I, I, I agree totally. And I, I think uh, one thing that we would say too, because we've now coached at pretty much every level of Division One basketball, <laughs> uh, and we always felt that there was a cumulative effect of playing against these bigger, stronger, more athletic teams where you could become much more uh, prone to get injured, get worn down. Uh, and so, like, when we were at Columbia, we had a really nice team our, our last year that won 25 games. And, and we, played, uh, we played a couple high majors and, and stuck with them, had a chance to win. Uh, and we did feel like for one game, yeah, we, we think we could beat almost anybody. Now, would we be favored? No, but we, we had a shot. But if you put us in one of those leagues where we had to play 18 of those in a row or 20 of those in a row, uh, just how skinny we were uh, and small we were, we would have gotten worn down is what we always felt and uh, and just gotten injured, too. And I think that's that's been a transition for us too coming to Washington State is that we, we really do feel like you need to have some big, strong athletic bodies, uh, specifically in the front court. Because if you don't, by the time you get to game 10, game 12, uh, you're going to have guys in the in the training room a little bit too often and guys, you know, playing on injuries that are undisclosed that are holding them back. And then some guys that are just not even cleared. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes makes a lot of sense. One thing I was thinking about when you're, you were talking about Gonzaga against uh, North Carolina and and. I can't remember who was favored in that team on, on your, your site or on that game and in your site, but I think it was pretty close to 50, 50. Um, is one thing that Jeff and I joke about quite often on this is, is the kind of the general public's misunderstanding of probability. And, um, how much do you run into that? And, and do you, do you think, coming to your website, there's sort of a baseline understanding of probability that someone might need to actually be able to um, use it effectively. Yes. It's a, it's a frustrating thing every year and I don't know how to, how to present it better, I guess on my site. But obviously when you go, you know, the issue I run into and and you guys are probably aware of, you go to a, a team page and, and a team will be, you know, an underdog in the next 12 games or whatever. And, you know, some writer will invariably say, like, oh, you know, Ken Palm projects them to go 0-12 and lose their next 12 games. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> they will be an underdog in those games, but underdogs do win games, and there's a probability right there, and uh, you can see it. But uh, I, I was just about to ask uh, how upset you were that we didn't go 0-18 this <laughs> <Right>. year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, right. You're the, you know, if you're the lowest-ranked team in the league, like, you're, it's not going to be favored in many games. You might be favored in zero games at the beginning of the season. And, uh, and obviously I'm not predicting you to lose all those games. So, um, I, yeah, there's, 
it's it's frustrating, but I also feel like there's got to be a better way to present that information, but I don't know how to do it. I've thought about, like, I can't remove, like, the L and W from the prediction because there's a score there. I could remove the score and the L and W, I guess, and just put a probability. Um, that would really kind of drive it home, maybe. Yeah, please, please don't remove that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I agree. Like, I, I do want to see that projected score. Um, so I, I don't know. If you guys have ideas, I'm, I'm all ears. But that is definitely well, a, a, the next frontier, I think, um, for the public. Um, improved uh, mathematical education yeah. in the United States. Yeah, I, I mean, know. outside of that. So, uh, you know, people who listen to the podcast know this, Ken, but I'm actually a high school teacher. I'm an English teacher, but I'm a high school teacher. And I'm always like, we should be teaching stats. Like, that's like that's it. Like, once you get past, like, geometry, it should be, that's it, stats. But, um you know, I just I, like I kind of wonder how many like angry tweets you get or how many like. So, for example, the Gonzaga game, Gonzaga was actually a 60, almost a little over 60 percent favorite in that game, uh, according to your model. And, you know, of course, they end up losing the game. So it's sort of like um, I, I wonder how many tweets you get where you're like, your system is crap because this team only had a 10 percent chance of winning and they won. Right. I I get, yeah, I get that all the time. I mean, I think there's definitely a subset of fans that understand the real value there is that, you know, it, it, those probabilities can help you assess how, how shocking an upset is, or in some cases, how not shocking it is. And that, uh, there's definitely some value in that. That really is the purpose of it. You know, when, uh, Evansville beats Kentucky, like, Hey, that's a, a 1% win. And, you know, there's only been, you know, an average of like two or three of those a year in the, you know, in the past 10 years. So that kind of puts that into perspective in a way that maybe just looking at the point spread doesn't. Right. Because 1% of the games is <laughs> right. Like, yes. you know, that should be the outcome 1% of the time. Yeah. You should have those, those, if your system is well calibrated, that should happen. Uh, you know, 1% wins should happen every now and then. And I actually added this on the site this year in the middle of the season to the, very conspicuously or inconspicuously the bottom of the uh, fan match page where there's a link to like the model diagnostics, which shows a breakdown of like how all the wind probability forecasts are done by range. And so uh, there were 76 games this year that had a prediction of uh, 99% or higher. And, and the favorite went 75 and one, which is, you know, roughly what you'd expect. And there were 104 games where the probability was 98 to 99%. And the favorite went 104, which uh, is actually a little bit underperforming this year, but, but it, so it does, you know, there is some information there that at least I can look at to make sure that the, the predictions are doing well. But yeah, I mean, that's the whole point is that there is a chance of the underdog winning all these games. And if your predictions are well calibrated, you know, the 90% favorite should only win nine out of 10 games. So there will be some losses in there. And I know from my end, um, it, it makes a difference how you write about it too. Like um, I notice a difference if I say, for example, that, you know, WSU has a, you know, a 40% chance of winning the game versus saying like, you know, WSU would be, you know, predicted to win the game 40% of the time. Like that's, it, you know, it's the same thing, but it's like, it just frames a little differently in the brain, you know, where it's like, oh, okay, so four out of 10 times, you know, the team would be expected to win. Oh, that's not crazy. You know, it's like, so I, I don't know. I try to frame it, it as I do with all the stats. Like that's kind of the one thing I've learned in the, you know, last dozen years writing about this stuff is that, you know, how you frame it and how you say it um, really makes a big difference in, in terms of how the how the reader understands it. Um, and then, John, I know you got, you know, one thing, one more thing here to chime in on on uh, on these these game predictions. Yeah. So, 
you know, for every game of the season, uh, Ken puts on his site who's projected to win uh, and by what margin. And he also puts a, a percentage, you know, so Washington State is 34% to win this road game. They're 62% to win this game and so on and so forth. And the, what's what's kind of funny is uh, my, my head coach, Kyle Smith, really tries to avoid uh, seeing those lines before games. Uh, and I, I think there's some real value in that as far as like, we don't want the line to, to soften us up. You know, we, we don't want to ever feel like, Hey, we're only 12% to win this road game. It's, you know, quote unquote, okay to lose, you know, because, uh, if you're, um, if you're constantly celebrating moral victories, you're not really celebrating many real victories. You know, so like at a certain point, you got to turn the program around and, and turning programs involves sort of uh, out kicking your coverage and doing better than what the models and predictions say. You know, winning that 16 percent game, uh, winning two more games that year than you were supposed to win in the preseason. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. I um, uh so there's, you know, obviously the famous scene where, where Han Solo is uh, steering the Millennium Falcon and Falcon into the asteroid minefield or whatever. I don't know. I, you, you know the scene I'm talking about, though. Han Solo is like asking C-3PO, me you know, what are the odds of this being successful? Or I forget right. how it works. C-3PO is, is telling yeah. him, like, what the odds are. And Han Solo is like, you know, forget the odds. Like, which if you're in that situation and trying to win a game, like, yeah, I don't think the odds are necessarily – useful like you say but i do think sometimes uh <laughs> there might be some benefit in knowing that you know you're pl- like especially you know i think people are always surprised when you're playing a good team and you're playing at home like your chances of winning even the worst team in the conference against the best team in the conference are more than people tend to think you know home court advantages even though i talk about how it's decreasing over time it's still very real and uh i think sometimes there's a little you know, I'll go to a game where a team feels like, you know, they should be an obvious underdog. And you look and they're like, ah, they're actually not that much of an underdog. And uh, sometimes I wonder uh, how you can use that to your advantage because the perception might be that you're a huge underdog or you can flip it. The perception might be that you're a huge favorite. And if you look at the line and you find out, well, you're only a 60% favorite, then you're probably going to not take that opponent lightly. And maybe that will, will help you prepare better. I don't know. So just to kind of follow up on that, um, have you, and maybe, and John, you can chime in on this as well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, maybe from both of your perspectives, is there a recipe for an upset? It, you know, so in other words, like, you know, when a, when a team pulls off a big upset, is there something strategically that they're doing? Are there any common threads? I mean, maybe other than just unusually hot shooting or something like that. Right. But, um, you know, is there anything like strategic, you know, for example, you know, shooting a ton of threes, right? Some sort of high variance, you know, strategy. Um, you know, have you ever noticed anything like that? And then and then maybe, John, you can chime in as well as a coaching staff, because like, you know, Ken, you were saying maybe there's some value in kind of knowing, you know, what you're up against. Um, and maybe that can influence coaching strategy as well. And John, I know you had a situation uh, at a previous stop, I think you said at Columbia, where um, you kind of went with a high variant strategy down the stretch to, to pull out a game. So I guess, I guess, Ken, I'll throw that to you first, if you've noticed anything. And then John, you can jump in on that. So this, you know, this was the concept uh, I first 
read about in, in basketball on paper, you know, Dean Oliver, you know, talked about using high variance strategies when you're an underdog and it, it made a lot of sense. Like uh, if basketball was played on paper, it would, it would make even more sense. But I, you know, over time I've kind of felt like, so you think about those high variance strategies, like, you know, one of them was like pressing, one of them was playing a low possession game, uh, you know, shooting a lot of threes. I mean, those are the obvious ones, but it, for the most part, it feels like unless that's your team identity, like going out of your way to play a low possession game or going out of your way to press, like if you don't do those things, like you're going to make your team worse in general. So despite the fact that you're adding variance, it's not really improving your chance of an upset. Now, obviously last three, four or five minutes or whatever, you know, different story, you know, obviously there are times where you're going to have to press when you get behind or you should take more threes or, or whatever. But, um, but generally I feel like the high variance concept is, uh, my feeling is anyway, I'm curious to hear what John thinks, but I think it's a little bit overstated. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, the one we always struggled with was, uh, the possession count. Um, and you know, like we played Kentucky at Columbia one year and we really did go out of our way to keep the possessions low and, and, uh, and they were low and we stayed in the game for a long time but we did ultimately lose, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if that really, uh, you know, made us that increased our chance of winning or it just uh, made the margin a little bit closer. Um, the, the other one, the one that I like though, is uh, when you're down late in games, uh, let's say like down nine with four minutes left or something, uh, just trying to put, put out the very best offensive team on the floor that you can. And I, I guess the, the logic behind it is, you know, if, if we're down nine with four minutes left, the most basic thing that we have to do in order to have a chance to win is we got to score nine points, you know, so you're probably only going to have four five, six possessions left and you need to be able to score on almost all those possessions or every single one. Uh, so I do think, you know, maybe playing small in those type of situations could give you a little better chance of coming back and, and that actually, unfortunately, that happened to us uh, when we were at Columbia. Princeton beat us by doing that. We were kind of in the driver's seat in the game at home, and uh, they just put five guards on the floor down the stretch. And you're kind of you're scared to throw it inside. You're scared to uh, uh, attack too much because you don't want you want to burn clock. You don't want to have a quick possession, uh, and you definitely don't want to commit an offensive foul. Um, but so I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. The incredible uh, shrinking lineups uh, effect, basically. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I agree. Like, obviously, it, it, you know, when you're down, it makes more sense to, you need points. It makes more sense to put the small lineup out there. And, and usually the other team has to adjust and go small to defend the, the greater offensive versatility. Um, the other thing that I like that came to mind was, I've written about this before, it's a little wacky. But uh, the Ty Lawson move, where uh, I'm surprised more teams don't do this when they're big underdogs. But uh, after a made basket, um, if you're the underdog and you, and you have a lead in the second half, you know you can milk the clock by inbounding the ball and have uh, you know basically nobody touch it for a while. So the start of the shot clock is delayed. And uh, UMBC did that a few times against Virginia. That's really the only time I've seen a team uh, kind of do that in a very obvious way but uh it seems like a, a way to to bleed significant amount a significant amount of the clock and the, and the irony is that actually virginia kind of plays that way themselves just right. in a normal way like 
after a made basket, Virginia is very often very lazy in terms of inbounding the basketball, especially when they have a lead. Um, so to have it done against them in such an exaggerated way was kind of funny. But uh, I'm curious. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, to see more uh, 16 seeds uh, try that strategy in the future. Yeah, well, it so, helps when they uh, UMBC also made every single three they took. Like, there was a lot more going on there. They obviously didn't win the game just because they, but, they but, broke Ty Lawson. But yeah. but yeah, it's kind of the uh, it's kind of the reverse uh, strategy of um, when your team is down late in the game, you're trying to save clock on a, on a stopped uh, a stopped clock. Uh-huh, right. And, and instead, the the other way around is to you know you like you say you can. The clock's running after the basket. You take four seconds to inbound. You roll it up the court, take five seconds to grab the ball. You know, the shot clock doesn't start, and suddenly that's 40 seconds. You can bleed off the clock, and um, that's that's a that's a fun thing. Uh, you, you ever considered that, John? Have you ever considered that strategy? Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I think the, the balance we're trying to strike is not uh, – is staying positive with the team and making them feel like, Hey, we can win this game. You know, if you if you bring out too many uh, quirks and stuff like that, the players can get a sense from their coaches that oh, they don't think we can win this game. You know, <laughs> they think we're up against Goliath, and this is going to be hard. You know, so that's that's the balance we're trying to strike. But for sure, I think that strategy should be going on a lot more. Well, and some of this is communicating strategy to players too, right? Because I mean. Like I know, uh, you know, Ken did a pretty extensive look at, you know, fouling up three. Right. And okay, so everybody, oh, fouling up three makes makes total sense. And I know the result of your analysis, Ken, was, eh, you know, it's a lot more of a toss up than you probably think. Um, and, and I, if I remember right, part of your analysis was, okay, you're assuming, you know, perfect execution from players. And that's far from um, far from a from a certainty. Correct. Yes. That, uh, yeah. I guess I'm curious to hear John's thoughts on it, but certainly that is that, you know, the, you know, when people uh, kind of dispute my findings, it's, that's the, the, the thing that they bring back is like, well, Hey, you, you know, you really have to practice it. And if you practice it, then your players won't make mistakes. And I mean, players are going to make mistakes. I, I, I agree. Like if you do need to practice it, but players are still going to make mistakes. Officials are going to make mistakes. I mean, that's, the other thing that happens, although it seems to be happening less often these days, like there were some pretty, I, you know, I don't have any like specific examples to give you, but on more than one occasion this, this year, I saw guys who clearly were anticipating getting fouled in that situation, go into the shooting motion, you know, from like half court and get fouled. And the, the official wouldn't give them three shots on the, you know, on that kind of move when like 10 years ago when I was doing the study or whenever it was seven years ago, like that seemed to happen, you know, two or three times a year. So uh, anyway, I, where, I guess I don't know if John wants to reveal state secrets, but like, where do you stand on uh, on the fouling up three thing? Yeah. Um, so we've, we've generally taken one strategy, or the other, uh, just to keep it simple with the team. Like we are going to be a foul up three team or we're not now uh, in reality, we feel that there are matchup things that can affect uh, which way to go is, is better. And, you know, for instance, like we always talked about back when, uh, back when we were playing Yale at Columbia and they had, uh, Brandon Sherrod and Justin, uh, Sears, they were, they were one of the very best offensive rebounding teams in the country, you know, and they kind of famously out rebounded Baylor in the tournament. 
And we felt that that was a team that we were not going to follow up three because we were, it was going to be very, very hard to get that, that rebound, especially in a got to have it sort of situation for them where let's be honest, the refs are going to let more go in terms of pushing in the back, pushing under over the back, things like that. Yeah. So I mean, that was one of my findings too, was that uh, what offensive rebounding rate was like 40% on, on that missed free throw. And uh, uh, you know, I don't know if you read my piece uh, regarding the, uh, the free throw violation strategy at the athletic earlier this year, which, Bob Walsh talked about, we don't need to get into that, but in reviewing uh, some of the clips from his team, there was this case where uh, there was just this absolute mugging for an offensive rebound where like one of his players, like basically got tackled or just shoved in the back, like going for an offensive rebound. There's no call. And uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Like that stuff uh, largely gets let go in that situation. So, Ken, you have been amazingly gracious and generous with your time. We've been going well past – we've gone well past 90 minutes. Uh, so, But I do want to give John one more chance to ask anything that's sort of on his brain that he wanted to make sure that he got in in terms of, of picking your brain here. Uh, all right. So, Ken, what if uh, if if you became a Division One head coach tomorrow uh, – is there anything that you think you would do differently than normal coaching staff does or things that you would value more uh, that would help you win more games? Oh, man. I hate this question, John. Because, first of all, <laughs> if, I was, if I was a Division One head coach, I would really suck. Um. <laughs> Subscription canceled, then. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're all we're all good at, at at some things and not others, right? <laughs> but how I mean, how would you you know philosophically, right? I, I mean, I think that's sort of what the question's getting after is you know philosophically, what what sorts of things would you emphasize and try and build to be the most successful? Well, I mean, here's the thing, okay? What's the most important thing for a, a basketball team? And it's the players. Like you have to have players. <laughs> and so I would really like to me the. Uh, the data-driven approach to recruiting and acquiring players, whether it's, you know, recruiting high school players or, or transfers or international guys or whatever is, you know, really in its infancy. Like there are, there are obviously efforts out there and people are trying to do things, but it's, you know, I don't know, there might be like 10 programs that actually know what they're doing in that regard. And I think there's a huge advantage to be gained there, especially if you're not, you know, the top team in your league. If you, if you had some sort of kind of, structural or financial disadvantage or whatever like that's how you can get ahead and so if i you know if i was working for a program or whatever that would be my my suggestion is just hire somebody whose sole focus is to work on that because it's a difficult problem not easy to solve but is solvable and there's more data out there than there's ever been so that's one of the reasons it's solvable so that you know if you get the players you know your head coach can uh can use any array of, uh, uh, you know, poor strategies and, and still be successful. So, so, uh, that is, that's where I would go. I like that a lot. I think that's a great answer. Well, I do. I, I, I will have to give, uh, John some kudos here. Uh, WSU just landed one of their uh, best big man recruits of all time this week, this last week. <laughs> so, um, whatever analytics you're using, John, good job. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, we can wrap it up here. Um, Ken, uh, 
if you have anything that you'd want to point people to or anything you want to promote while you're here, um, uh, feel free. Uh, nothing. <laughs> Things are kind of slow right now, guys. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't necessarily have anything going on that uh, that I can point to at the moment, obviously. Uh, well, I'll just tell I'll just tell there. people, yeah, your the subscription's good for a year. So if they buy it now, it'll carry them through all of next season. Just get in ahead of the game, and you know. Yeah, there's still you know there's still some stuff I got to work out, I guess, from last year in terms of uh, people you know, expecting to pay for a tournament that they didn't get. Um, but yeah, yeah, the subscription is good for twelve months, and if Him. for some reason the tournament gets delayed or whatever next year, I'll uh, I'll take care of you. But uh, but yeah, yeah, got KenPom.com, and uh, hopefully I'll crank out some articles. You, you alluded to uh, something Jeff Goodman has been uh, talking about that I might have to write about just because. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, it's, uh, Blood feud. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully there'll be some writing up on the blog here in the next few weeks. I mean, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. More podcast interviews? Well, that's. <laughs> I don't mind doing that at all, that's for sure. Well, we're here everywhere, every week, Ken. So, All right. Um, we haven't talked about yet how WSU is, is the national champion. Right. Um, because it won the they last won the game. won the final game. I was going to bring that up myself. Yeah, I remember uh, watching that last game, like, you know, just thinking about, I don't know how how it was, was like, within the team. But from the outside, I was just like, because, you know, normally I go to the Pac-12 tournament, and I did not go because I saw what was coming. And, uh um, just watching that game was kind of bizarre because I can't remember. I know, I think Walton was calling it maybe like Ted Robinson. I, yeah. Walton was calling yeah, it. Yeah. And, uh, it was just like the, uh, the contrast between that game and the, the NBA game that was going on against it between the, uh, I forget who it was, the Mavericks were playing and like Doris Burke was one of the analysts and whoever the play by play guy was like, they were obviously, they were aware that, Hey, this is probably, you know, the last game we're going to call for a while. And Ted Robinson and Bill Walton were just like, blissfully like unaware like just treating this game like it was the most important thing in the world and uh <laughs> well that's i mean in fairness but bill walton does that with everything so just i know blissfully but it, was, it was a very unusual approach in that situation <laughs> i i did go to your to your fan match page when you mentioned it earlier and uh cj Ellaby did have the line of the night that night so not only wsu national champion oh. cj Ellaby most outstanding player player um, of the year Player of the year, but don't tell him any of that, John. He has to come back. He has a lot more to accomplish, right? So, no, no doubt. We got to uh, we got to keep our crown as highest preseason rated uh, Ken Palm team. That's right. <laughs> it's a low bar, John. I should point that out. I don't want to round it. That has nothing right, to do with podcast. He's done. But, but John, that has nothing to do with you. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So uh... yeah, yeah. That's more of a commentary on uh, other staffs. all right well um thank you both thank you ken thank you john uh this was a lot of fun for us i hope it was a lot of fun for y'all listening um yeah go ahead and please uh check out kenpom.com and uh give them your uh 20 bucks if you if you want um i i know i do and i and i uh i love it um ken again i just wanted to say uh you uh have been a tremendous influence on me as a human being and as a writer. Um, I appreciate you uh, chatting with us uh, today. And uh, yeah, so Jeff, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say, but um, uh, except maybe go Cougs. Go Cougs.
Go Cougs.